0: This is Power, Power Athlete, Athlete Radio.
1: With your hosts, Denny K,
0: Professor Booty, and V. Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and
2: retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Radio episode nine. I'm here with Luke and Denny and John Wellborn. What's up, guys? What's going on? What's happening? All right. Uh, Well, John, first of all, thanks for being on. Um, You know, our listeners appreciate when uh, the man behind the scene gets on and answers some questions. And uh, one of the questions that we wanted to talk to you about was, what is your what are your thoughts on the uh, Power Athlete Team Series and um, why Team Series instead of Occupy Strength?
0: Uh, I feel like Occupy was so 2012 that we needed a kind of a fresher challenge. Um, the other thing, too, when we really morphed into this power athlete uh, mentality, we kind of got into this uh, or got back to kind of this team mentality. Uh, CrossFit is such an individualized sport and having played football, uh, I always worked within a team environment. So when we really started looking at, hey, what do we want to do? Uh, we want to kind of morph it and. and grow this thing, do something fresh, do something fun. The power athlete team series was brought to the table and we all kind of agreed, like we want to do like a four person team. And the idea of actually kind of specializing with a lift and then kind of, you know, pitting uh, the strong versus the conditioning part. And it kind of went back to this philosophy or, uh, really the phenomenon we used to see in the NFL where we had this deal. And I talk about the seminars, but, uh, look like Tarzan play like Jane. I mean, there were guys that, you know, were, you know, draft, I mean, a uh, combine monsters that had the 40 inch vertical and 300 pounds and 6% body fat. And they did 40 reps on the bench and they just had these phenomenal numbers. And then they go out the very first day and you'd hit them once and they'd crumble like they were made of, uh, uh you know, tissue paper. So, We used to call those guys all the time, look like Tarzan and play like Jane. And then there were other guys that looked like they won a contest that were driving a beer truck that would just show up and would just murder people. And so it was, you know, you can't really judge a book by its cover. Now, obviously, there's certain guys in the NFL where, you know, they look the part. You know, you look like uh, that Willis linebacker guy from the Niners Mm was, you know, that guy's dieseled out. So. You know, when we put this thing together, we wanted to kind of pair the strong and the strength and conditioning. And are you fit? uh, Are you able? Are you athletic? Are you able to change directions and do a lot of things? And so this kind of was the natural progression for what are you training for? And being able to kind of bring in some people. And the thing which was awesome in our first contest is the people that posted the biggest total did not win the event. So we had a girl that squatted 400 pounds but couldn't do a box jump. So she was plenty strong, but you know, was she dynamically strong? Could she? You know, was she a power athlete? And you know, for me, my definition of a power athlete is: can you display your strength dynamically? Can you move within space? Can you jump? Can you run? Are you athletic? Are you able to compete at a high level? And uh, I think we did a great job of creating a contest that really brings that to the forefront.
1: Wow! Sounds like it could be um, for people
0: who are building teams and purely gunning to kick some ass in the total. They better have some conditioning or they're just going to end up shit in the bed. Yeah. I mean, that was effectively it. I mean, we, we were interested. I mean, you know, if somebody comes out there and you got a 700 pound squat and you can do all these things, I mean, then you know what? You deserve the money. You deserve the plates and you deserve our praise. You deserve to be on the site and you're held up. You come in with that 700 pound squat, but you walk across the pack, uh, parking lot and almost pass out, you're going to struggle a little bit. So uh, I think people have this idea that, hey, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it. Well, you know, we weigh this thing and uh, everything's based on body weight and we definitely weigh this stuff. So you got to be strong. you got to be in shape. Um, you know, I've played with plenty of guys that could bench and lift the world, but, you know, couldn't go play play day in, day out. that couldn't, you know, keep hammering and didn't have the conditioning or necessarily the mental toughness to be able to go and do it day out. And, you know, those guys didn't get to play.
1: Yeah, it's that pound for pound mentality or maybe even little big dog or a hard hat, kind of lunch pail type mentality where you're going to go in, you're going to do the best you can. You don't have to be the biggest. You don't have to be the fastest. You just got to be able to work hard and be a good mover. That's that's exactly what we were looking for out of the the results. So it's going to be – It's the rest of this, this whole series is going to be awesome. We're stoked for Atlanta. Hey, Playtech, you're going this weekend, right, buddy?
2: That's right, man. Yeah, just a couple days. Our team is – I was just telling Denny, we're – kind of prepared. I, I like the idea of this new thing. It's almost like, um, you know, you're you're testing a general athletic prowess, but you're also testing maybe what you could call like positional skill, right? So you've got the squatters, the deadlifters, the pressers, whatever. But then generally that, that, that woman who uh, squatted 400, but couldn't do a box jump. She didn't have that general athletic prowess. I think our team is strong. We've got maybe a weak link, myself (laughs) um (laughs) but i mean i think that uh i think we're going to do pretty well i know a couple of teams have just come out of the woodwork some super teams so i think it's going to be a great throwdown we're pretty we're pretty excited and and there's no one on my team who's who's going to this competition to have fun there's no one who's going to lose we're going with the mindset that we're going to win we're taking it home i like
0: it i like it. it's legit dude Yeah. Take home those plates. Use them proudly. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, we were sitting here and I'm looking at the prizes. I'm looking at the plates. I'm looking at the money and I'm like, dude, we need to compete in this thing. (laughs) uh, I don't know if they'd let us, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who would stop us, but maybe we go in there and throw our hat in at some point.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it in Atlanta. Don't do it in Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. It's, uh, yeah, I can't wait. Um, I haven't done a CrossFit competition. I mean, outside the open, but that's not like a real competition in a long time. And this one is just right up our alley. So I think we're what, gonna... What's the open, a make-believe competition? Uh, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not a make-believe competition, John. I think that the open is, is a different environment. I mean, you can set yourself up in your gym. I was talking about this with one of my athletes yesterday and that you can go to your gym and do the open wads, but you're doing it against the guys that you compete with every day. When you show up on the field on a weekend with a bunch of strangers, there's something about that, that just drives, I don't know, whatever it is, adrenaline, competition mode, at least for me, I know if I walk out, I mean, this is what happened in my, in my, and Luke, keep all the bench press comments to yourself. But like (laughs) when I went to the, when I went to the powerlifting meet, you know, I was like, I know how I train when my guys are around, when my coach is yelling at me, when my training part or when I'm training by myself in my garage, because I got to teach that day, but but when there's that environment of other people around, I think it's totally different. And I think most gyms don't set the open up in that way. I think you basically go into your gym with the same people you train day in and day out. So it's it's a it's a practice or a scrimmage instead of going up against the guy that you want to rip his throat out um, type of mentality. At least that's how I think of it. That's not
0: why. That's I'm... good. I mean, that's a good mentality. I mean, it's. Uh... I never really thought, and, and I guess it's true, I mean, in terms of like competing against people, but I guess people get pretty honorary and you're like, you know what, I'm not gonna let this person beat me. And uh, I think that's a great mentality for it. I mean, i uh, that's really what we're trying to foster. I mean, uh, like when I really look at uh, what we want to accomplish with CrossFit football, it was never about the workouts. It was never really about the training. It was, uh, you know, this training is effectively sharpening the skills, the tools, the needs. Of our athletes to be able to go out and effectively use it on the field and if they cannot effectively use the training or more importantly the training hasn't prepared them for the rigors and the demands of what supposedly we're preparing them for then I failed we failed and then we need to go back and we need to reassess and uh, you know come up with a new plan of attack to get our athletes there fortunately the program that we put out is based on some very basic physiology and strength training principles and, uh, you know, we've found over uh, the last four or five years through you know, my own training and you know, going out and meeting and teaching the seminars and really getting to know and, and even testing and ferreting uh, our own training that I think we found something that effectively works. And what's cool is that now we have a contest that I think test this. What we need is we just need more people to come out so we can kind of have a bigger experiment. I mean, I would love to be able to sell out every single one of these and have these things on, you know, two contests back to back. Just so that I could get more data points, you know, and then what's also cool is that people are using different, different training styles. I mean, I would love if somebody came to our contest and was like, you know, everybody that wins the contest is doing this guy's training. Well, you know what? We, We might need to look at what that guy's doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's what I was really kind of hoping for. I mean, we're just not putting out a contest just to have a contest just so that we could rah, rah, beat our chest and say, Hey, look at us, uh, much like the website and the, the posts and really putting out this style of training was kind of a huge sea monkey experiment in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, what's, what's a faster way to find out if your program works or not give it away for free and get all the data points and then travel the world, meeting all the people that did the stuff at the seminars, and hearing the same stories in day out, and it doesn't matter if it was in, you know, the Arctic Circle in Norway or New Zealand or Australia across the world, everybody that did has done the program has gotten very, very similar results. I mean, people come up to us and they like look surprised. They're like, dude, I got bigger and stronger and faster and I was able to jump higher. I had more capacity and I was able to do these things better because of the program. And I always kind of look at them like, so what you're telling me is that a program based on lifting heavy weights, Uh, moving dynamically, uh, you know, a lot of dynamic pulling, a lot of vertical pulling, um, you know, a lot of pushes and some smart metabolic conditioning and smart conditioning and sprint work has gotten you stronger. Great. And the diet work help you put on body weight and get you bigger and stronger. Yes. I recover. I sleep better. I feel better. Awesome. So what you're saying is that training smart training with some, you know, very basic principles that we've stuck to. And applying these over a long enough timeline has yielded the response and elicited the responses we're looking for. Yes, I'm like, Roger that. I guess we were on the right track. I mean, but these are things that we already knew. It's just it's always good to go meet the people and get the gratification. And I think really where we started with the Occupy and more importantly with this was I got constantly emailed by numerous people being like, you say, what are you training for? Well, give me something to train for. Come up with a goal, and I'm like, "Come up with a goal. How am I supposed to come up with a goal? I don't know what you're training for." (laughs) And so, with the occupy, our deal was, well, if we don't really know where to push you, I mean, I tell people, "Hey, compete in the open, compete in the CrossFit competition, go clean up at the local CrossFit competition, wear your CrossFit football stuff, Um, you know, do a Tough Mudder, do whatever you want to do, whatever you feel that you're able to display your training." Um, and we just, we were able to create Occupy and I think Occupy had a, a great response for us last year. I just think with the team series, I think people necessarily don't know how to attack it. And I kind of like it. Uh, I like to throw people at curveball. You know, I love putting up the workouts and saying, Hey, you're gonna have to be strong. You're gonna have to be good in the basic lifts, but can you come and do this conditioning portion? Can you mix the strength and condition?" So I think it's really hitting home with, with our ideals. And I think, uh, you know, we'll do some version of this next year and we'll just continue with this. because I think we found a sweet spot. I think we just need to refine it.
2: Yeah, I agree. I like the idea of a team, uh, team competition because it allows you to get specialists in a lift and it allows you to sort of test your conditioning as a group. Um, and then for you, it gives you guys some ideas about what's working and what programs are working. And so you had mentioned earlier that um, you know, if you found out that every, everyone who wins this event or, or the Occupy event or, or, any event says, Hey, I'm doing, you know, so-and-so's programming, you guys might have to take a look at that. Is there, are you guys collecting those kind of data?
0: Yeah. I mean, at the very first one, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we talked to Callie at great length and we're like, you know, I want you to hit up the people I'd love to know, you know, and we'll send out questionnaires here. Uh, to you know, to all the teams and ask them a little bit about their training and what they were doing and how they felt and you know what they felt they could have done better. How could they have done uh, you know made a better experience or how they thought they could have improved or you know what their shortcomings were, where they missed in their training. And um, you know, we'll shoot out some questionnaires and hopefully get some accurate data points and really start kind of putting this thing together. I remember years ago when the CrossFit game started in 2007, and even when I was there in 2008. There was this kind of deal, like, what does the training look like? You know, what are the fittest people in the world doing? You know, how are they using their training? And, you know, you can go back and look at OPT stuff or even when Kalipa won in 2008. What were those guys doing for their training? And, uh, you know, what did it look like? And what's been pretty interesting is those guys are still pretty good. Yeah. Um, you they, they really haven't fallen by the wayside. I mean, it also helps to be 24 years old. So hopefully they have a long, long career in this CrossFit stuff. But what's been pretty amazing is, you know, obviously, uh, I, I don't specifically know what a lot of those guys do for the training, but I'm guessing that they probably do some form of sport specific and, you know, that would be obviously the CrossFit movements. There's probably some form of strength template involved in there. I mean, you can't have a guy snatching 300 pounds, just uh, occasionally randomly lifting weights i mean you know you got to have some block periodization where you're focusing on strength movements and then obviously um you know adhering to some of the constantly varied uh functional movements performed at high intensity kind of model you know a model which we know you know yields that kind of lactic acid threshold training which causes a uh you know growth hormone response and then potent neuroendocrine response and by constantly changing the rep schemes and the movements and the the times and the intensities and you know you can hopefully continue to elicit those responses, and you know hopefully the sleep and the training and the recovery and the protocol and the restoration can help um, you know blunt some of the cortisol response because we obviously know constantly training in that you know neurological or physiological dist- or uh, stressful situation causes cortisol response. So it's just kind of interesting. I mean, More so than anything, I mean, I would love to see hormone profiles on a lot of these guys. I mean, how can these guys continually be able to exceed expectations doing this uh, form of high-intensity interval training? It's been pretty fascinating, too. So um, I know for professional football players, I mean, we trained all year around and took off very little time. But we really only had 16 to 22 100% max effort games played and, you know, seven days in between games just be, you know, you're out there grinding and it's like, um, you know, you only have so many bullets in the gun. Uh, you know, these guys in this CrossFit dealer are going out and they're competing almost every single day at such a high level, you know, obviously they're not wearing, you know, 25 pounds worth of gear, having 300 pound gorillas run into them, but you know, being able to physically perform at such a high level over you know, a huge period of uh, amount of time, you know, just physiologically. I mean, I'd love to see some muscle biopsies because we know that you know, obviously, to, for success in crossfit, you got to have conversion of the fast twitch to slow twitch fibers just to be able to be able to do these extended workouts. Where if you look at guys that are very successful in the NFL or sprinters or these kind of high intensity, short duration athletes, are definitely going to have a different physiological profile. So, I mean, it just I think this thing is kind of a really interesting experiment. And I think the place it's been most interesting seen is uh, we're starting to see what it does to the female athlete when you prescribe a high protein, high fat, low carb or moderate carb diet with uh, lifting heavy weights. Um, You know, this is something we've never really seen where now we have a situation where, you know, bigger, stronger girls are kind of, you know, that's kind of the model that, you know lifting weights is cool eating a high protein diet is cool I and mean, when when have we ever seen this in society i mean before the standard you know uh, diet or and nutritional or, or fitness practice for girls has been what a bagel and a smoothie and uh, you know five pound dumbbells for you know because you don't want to get bulky but now you have girls that are realizing well wait a minute if i lift heavy weights i'm not going to get bulky i'm going to get thicker and stronger and more explosive and and then coupling it with some high-intensity interval training, like we said, that lactic acid threshold training and getting a nice, uh, you know, uh, androgen response from it. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated to see, and especially having two daughters that are 18 months old, I like this mentality. I like this model a lot better than the, than the last one that we just hopefully got away from.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I have a son, but I I teach at the college and see lots of young women who are, you know, they're exercising, they're trying to be fit. And so they're walking on the treadmill or the elliptical or what have you for an hour at a time eating absolutely horrible. And when I try to talk some sense into them, I get the response that you guys probably get, which is, um, you know, uh, I don't want to get too big, right? I don't want to be bulky like you, or I don't want to be that girl who doesn't have any boobs or what have you. But, but... In the last couple of years, CrossFit and the the ancestral lifestyle and paleo lifestyle have really changed the mentality. It's been, I think it's a good thing. I think uh, we're going to see a lot of changes in uh, eating disorders and body dysmorphic uh, uh, ideations in women. Um, I think it's a great thing. And I think also what it uh, identifies is if you do this kind of training that optimizes a neuroendocrine or or endocrinological response in your body, what happens is a sex-specific hormonal response. Guys look like, and I hate to use this term because it's not very scientific, but guys look like guys and girls look like girls, right? I mean, if you go and you lift heavy weights and you do sprint work and you do uh, this high-intensity variable training, you most cases, you don't end up looking like an Arnold Schwarzenegger if you're a female. You end up looking curvy. You've got a nice ass. You've got nice legs. I mean, you look like a woman. You just are big and thick and strong and you can handle your kids like your husband can. And what I see in the guys that do it is they end up looking like they got that nice V-shape, broad shoulders. Some of them can see their abs once in a while. I think it's uh, such a cool, like you said, a cool experiment that just optimizes the the evolutionarily based endocrinological response of the sexes.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you couple all this stuff with, uh, you know, I really go back to the diet stuff. I mean, um, you have a situation where people are actually, you know, this idea of flesh builds flesh. I and mean, what I was blown away by when I was first approached by the CrossFit, uh, community to really go out and teach our seminars and start kind of posting information. I was kind of amazed that normal people wanted to know this stuff. Like, uh, you know, all the training that I'd learned over the years, I mean, a lot of the diet stuff. I mean, even going back and when I first started working with Dr. Dave Pasquale in, I think, like 1999, and we started talking about the anabolic diet and how to use it and, um, you know, training with the different people I was fortunate to go train with. Uh, when I got out, I, I was amazed that normal people, one, they wanted to work this hard. Cause anytime I'd ever been to a commercial gym, I just saw people doing a lot of silly bullshit that I just assumed was, uh, just exercise. Like I always made this distinction in my brain between training and exercise. Uh, when you train, you train for a goal. Like my goal was, uh, you know, never based on, in terms of aesthetics or, you know, uh, I want to be able to, let I me mean, thank God there was no Facebook cause then I wouldn't have to see 8,000 pictures of dudes with their shirts off. um, <laughs> But this whole idea was, is the training that I'm doing today, is the meal that I'm eating, is the sleep that I'm getting, is the recovery, the restoration, the massage, the supplements, the blood testing, is all of those things driving me towards my goal of being better at my given sport. And what's been kind of nice is I think a lot of people really lack that and they miss that. So, you know, they go into the gym, they walk, they do uh, this thing, which is called monkey see, monkey do, where if you see somebody else doing something, and he looks like he's in better shape than you. Then you're going to do it. Uh, we actually to the point where we were training at a commercial gym. We just tried to do some stupid stuff just to see if we could get people to do it, <laughs> and it used to work all the time. Um, but it's just it's just kind of a monkey see, monkey or a monkey do mentality. Now you have a situation where people are coming in and they're going into gyms that have no mirrors. They're going into training facilities that supposedly are based on performance. Now, what people have figured out is that when you start training for performance, function or form follows it. So you meet people all the time. I mean, and this is the one that blew me away when I was way more active in terms of dealing with the initial clients at our gym. And people come in and I'd be like, so, you know, what are your goals? And my favorite one is uh, a girl or lady came into me and she was like, I want to look like one of the Olympic gymnast girls. Those girls have the greatest butts. They got great legs. Their backs are muscular and all this. And I was like, okay, how do you think they train? She's like, well, I I, I don't know. I assume they do gymnastics. I was like, well, do you think that they look that way because of the training or they look that way so they got into the training? Or do you think they do something else that lets them go that or look that way? And she looked at me and was like, well, I I have no idea. I'm like, well, there's a good chance that their bodies and the general physical, uh, you know, perception that you have of them, that they all look very similar. I mean, you can look at gymnasts today from, let's say, Russia and different countries, and they all basically have the same general appearance. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you look at all like the... uh, you know, uh, uh, like sub hundred kilo Olympic lifters, they all have the same kind of general look. I mean, you look at a a majority of the Olympic sprinters, the guys that run the hundred, they all kind of have the same kind of, you know, obviously the same bolts different, but they all, you know, look very, very similar. So it's like, okay, if the demands of the athlete or the demands of the sport kind of pre-select or there's a certain body type or, you know, obviously here, I mean, you look at all the offensive linemen in the NFL, They're all, you know, somewhere between 6'2 and 6'6. I mean, some guys are 6'8. They're all 290 to 370 pounds. I mean, they're all big, strong guys. I mean, it's just kind of like everything kind of fits. But when I was meeting with this lady, um, when I talked to her about what they do in terms of the amount of hours and the training and, uh, you know, what the girls do for their gymnastics, she had no desire to do that. And she's like, well, is there any way that I can look like that eating my present diet and walking on the treadmill and doing some yoga. And I was like, no, like that's a, like, that's insanity. I mean, like it, it just, it just blew me away or, you know, people like the other one that blew me away was, um, you know, we know that there's a difference in muscle, you know, like uh, different types of hypertrophy versus that sarcoplasmic water-based versus a uh, kind of a myofibular d- thick, dense hypertrophy, you know, that myofibular, comes from, you know, one, two, three, four, five reps, over 85% heavy weights, you know, you start looking at a higher volume, more of the bodybuilder stuff, you start getting that more kind of boldness, sarcomplastic hypertrophy. I mean, that definitely comes from, you know, a certain rep range, a certain percentage. And if you look at some of the best bodybuilders in the world and some of those guys, I mean, those, you know, some of those guys bang super heavy weights and those guys bang light weights, but it all kind of branches out. I mean, I mean, you can even go back and look at Charlie Francis stuff that he did with Ben Johnson. Charlie Francis just died a couple of years ago. But, you know, his training with Ben Johnson, I mean, I think before the Olympics, I mean, give or take the drug thing. I mean, Ben Johnson's doing five and six hundred pounds for box squats, you know, 10 days out from the Olympic Olympic Games. So, I mean, very explosive, very strong people. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the training has to be representative of the goal. And what people, I think, have effectively found with a lot of this CrossFit and a lot of the training, a lot of these training facilities or conditioning places, is that they are now having a goal that you have to train and they are finally getting the results or they're looking or they're physically feeling the way that they should based on their athletic performance. So it's been kind of an interesting phenomenon and uh, one that I never thought I would see in the general pop. And probably CrossFit's not the general pop, but hopefully it affects the
2: general pop. Yeah, I think it is infecting the general population a little bit. Slowly at least. Um, it's growing exponentially. Um, awesome. Uh, maybe we, since you mentioned uh, some things about nutrition and sleep, we last episode we talked a little bit about sleep. and one of our listeners or whatever said, you know, doesn't get good sleep, tries to get it when he can. What are her thoughts about the importance of sleep? And we had some big conversation about it. Um, and then Callie got on and uh, commented that she did a little self experimentation on herself, saying things like, um, "You know, she changed up what she ate. She changed up what she listened to. Like she found out that listening to music with words in it kept her awake, so she started to listen to." Uh, without lyrics um what she ate what time she trained in the day and i was wondering if you had anything for our listeners to talk about the interaction of sleep and nutrition
0: um i think that there is a, a huge interaction um i definitely for me i know that um i'm not a big fan of the uh, the carb backloading i mean i don't uh, you know, the idea of, Hey, I'm going to train at four or five o'clock at night and then I'm just basically going to house like 400 grams of any carb I can get a hold of. The problem I would run into with that is, uh, if I eat carbs later in the day, uh, I definitely get real hot and, uh, I don't not sleep as well. I know for me that, uh, as I taper off, you know, more of a meat and fat thing, uh, helps me later in the day and I know that for dinner I usually you know eat some form of animal-based protein and then try to get some either mono or, or, uh, monounsaturated or uh, uh, saturated fat because I know that if I'm able to consume that, I actually don't get hungry in the night. There were certain points in my life where I didn't eat enough fat, and I would wake up in the middle of the night from a stomach drop, and I would wake up and I'd find myself wanting to go eat something. I would go eat and come back to bed to the point where I was actually putting protein shakes next to my bed. So if I woke up, I would consume the calories. And uh, there got to be a point where I realized that if I had more fat, I wouldn't wake up. And then I had to start setting my alarm for 2.30 in the morning so I could get up and drink my protein shake. And it was amazing, uh, you know, the level of sleep. But what's been most interesting for me with sleep uh, is um, I've never had problems sleeping uh, to the point where I could lay down on the floor just about anywhere and go to sleep. Uh, once I go to bed, I usually don't wake up. I mean, I've, I've been a very, very good sleeper my whole life. So I have a hard time relating to that. But what I have noticed, and this was interesting having kids, uh, when our, our little girls were just, I think they were about a week shy of three months, they slept through the night. And I remember it was right when they were about 12 pounds, they started sleeping through the night. And when I went back and did some research I realized that their stomachs were big enough, to let them carry enough food to where they could actually sleep through the night before that their stomachs were too small. And then we ended up uh, contacting some ladies that came in that were uh, sleep counselors. It was kind of a deal. My wife's like, you know, they have these sleep specialists that come in and they do some sleep training with the kids. And when I went back and did uh, some research, I came to the conclusion that our sleep patterns and our ability to sleep come uh, very early in our life and are actually set when we are babies. So. Uh, you know, the ability to be able, you know, like, especially for your kids and those of you guys that know that have kids, you know, the kid that cries and just keeps crying and the parent runs in there and picks them up and, you know, then you sue them and put them back opposed to the kids that can actually put themselves back to sleep. And I remember, uh, when we were working with the sleep trainers, that was a big deal. Like if the kid cries, you can't go in there. You know, if they cry for like 30 minutes straight and they're standing up in the crib and screaming, I mean, obviously you got to go in there and sue them. But, you know, like you can't go in there on any peep. You have to let them or teach them to go back uh, back to sleep. And I, what was interesting was a, uh, an interesting study that was discussed where they talked about sleep patterns between the oldest children and the youngest children. So, you know, parents have, you know, two and three and four kids, obviously. And it was like the, uh, the first kid was not nearly as good as a sleeper as the later kids. And probably what happened was, you know, with the very first one, as you know, you know, they make a peep and you go running in there and you want to, you know, you're all nervous. And by the time you've had your third and fourth kid, I mean, unless they're set on fire, you're probably not going to pay attention. To
2: them. <laughs> you <laughs> so, lost I mean, interest. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it was interesting when I talked to my mom, I said, you know, mom, when I was little, she's like, actually, uh, um, you know, you slept everywhere just because we had to run carpools. Uh, I didn't have time. Like, you know, you put down for your crib, you shut the door. If you wanted to scream, I was going to let you scream until you got tired just because I didn't have time to go in there and mess with you. And I think as a result, I have really good sleep. My wife is not nearly as good a sleeper, sleeps very light and has always kind of struggled a little bit. And she was the oldest child. And I I don't know if that's a syndrome for it, but it was very important for us with our kids to make sure they were good sleepers. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's some sleep cocktails that you can take for for people. Uh, Dr. Kirk Parsley is a a, a doc that we do some work with and he's, uh, you know, has been on Rob's podcast. Is a pretty interesting cocktail that a lot of guys use. That's got some natural calming and some melatonin. Um, we also know sleep is vital for hormones. Uh, we talked a little bit about Dr. Jin's research, and we got to get him on here. And also, Steve, I'm have I've flaking on getting him in contact with you. But you know, he talked about you know the brain being this this battery that generates heat all uh, that generates heat all day, and then uh, there needs to be a certain point at which that battery, be, you know, uh, calms down, is able to cool itself obviously, sleeping within those circadian rhythms. And you know, Dr. Jin's deal was, hey, if you can sleep from 10 to 2, you sleep within your circadian rhythm. If you woke up at 205 to 10, you know, that's realistically all your brain needs. Obviously, that's not true for the body. The body needs more physical rest. But being able to really get to sleep and what I've found for me is that if, uh, you know, uh, like I eat a lot of carbs, a lot of processed stuff, obviously, I do not sleep nearly as well as when I just kind of, taper off the carbs at the end of the day. So, but everybody's different. I mean, I get always asked questions like, what do you think about carb front loading, side loading, back loading? What do you think about fat loading? I mean, everybody's got some magical deal, but, uh, when I really look at a lot of these diet prescriptions and whether it's carb backloading or any of these other things, and that's just the book I read recently, um, it just looks like, uh, somebody writing a book to kind of, and I guess the word is uh, allow people to have their cake and eat it too. Like everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Um, this idea like, hey, if you do this, you can eat all the bad carbs you want, or you can eat all the, all the crap foods you want. Um, you know, that just doesn't make sense. I, I read an article recently where... A guy was, you know, giving all this nutritional advice, and this is how you should eat, and this, and he made no distinction. You know, talking about carbs, no distinction between good carbs and bad carbs. We know there are certain carbs that do not cause mass inflammation like others. He also talked about insulin being a digestive hormone, which uh, I thought was completely ludicrous. I mean, we know insulin is a transport hormone, absolutely. And um, you know, he just there's it, it, just a lot of bullshit out there. And I think people want somebody to co-sign off and say, "Yeah, you can have your cake and eat it too." If you eat completely ketogenic all day, you train at four o'clock at night, you can go home and eat 400 grams of ice cream, or 400 grams or 400 grams of uh, carbohydrates of just ice cream, pizza, cake, whatever you want, and you'll be shredded. Um, I, you know, at what, I mean, even if it works, at what point of consuming those foods and the inflammation and the problems for it. So uh, really what we're talking about is how do you make a healthier, stronger individual? I'm just not looking, you know, to have you. You know, I, I don't know. It just I, I'm just kind of lost with a lot of this stuff. But at the end of the day, I guess people got to sell books, and people got to sell their methodology. And, and you know, it's not always sexy to tell people that you know, uh, you know, calories in, calories out. That if you put good stuff in, the car will run better. If I put in high octane gas, the car will do, will do better. You know, it's like not like saying like, hey, well, if you get your car washed, you can run it on water. It doesn't work. Better.
2: Yeah. Uh, the whole car backloading idea hasn't made much sense to me. I've read some stuff on it too. And even the physiology seems, um, it doesn't jive with sort of how I think about it. And it, and when I, you know, independent of sort of physiological basis of car backloading, I'm sure it works for some people. To me, it does not seem to support a performance-based athlete. I, in recent years, I mean, I'm old and I have a son um, and a wife and like a job and all that. Like, I don't really care what I look like with my shirt off at the beach. I just want to be able to squat 500 pounds and deadlift 700 and just be strong and maybe bench more than a 13-year-old girl. And, um, you know, I I don't know how the car backloading can can translate into a performance diet, especially if, like you said, you're car backloading with ice cream and pizza. I mean, I know for myself, when I if I go out on a quote unquote cheat night, my wife and I decide that we're not going to cook, and we're like, let's just get pizza and. Every day we regret it. The next day we're horrible. We wake up, you know, uh, our son's name is Spencer. He wakes us up, and we feel like we have a hangover, and we haven't drank. We we have a we have a food hangover. You know, we're inflamed. We feel horrible, and and it comes out in all of our our everyday behaviors, our psychology, our sleep is horrible. And it takes about twenty four hours or so of good eating to sort of, you know, flush the system. You know, to to get the sugar out of the gas tank, so to speak. Um, so that doesn't make sense to me. You know, la- last. La-
0: Well, I was just going to say for me, I mean, uh, when when, uh, we go teach these seminars and I really talk on nutrition, uh, the place that we start with are, these are the foods, I want you to eat these foods, I want you to limit these foods, and I want you to eliminate these foods. Well, we get into the amounts, I'm like, hey, if you need to gain weight, you need to maintain your weight, you need to lose weight, this is what I need, these are the volumes I need to consume, and I always get questions where people ask me, well, you know, how many meals should I eat, when should I eat, should I eat this, I mean, should I partition, should there be a macronutrient balance and i always tell people for me personally i get the majority of my carbohydrate consumption probably 95 percent of it in the post-workout meal or the post-workout shake and that meal 90 minutes after i mean after i train i usually hit some form of you know a uh, simple carb with some form of simple protein something easily digestible literally as soon as I, you know, we get done training. I mean, you're still breathing heavy. I'm trying to pound something, get something in the system immediately. And then I try to eat that meal within 90 minutes of that. And I usually get my entire bulk of carbohydrate in those meals. I mean, obviously no fat in those meals. You know, fat slows absorption into the system. But every other meal, usually the meals before and all the meals after are almost no carb or all protein and fat. And what I've effectively found is that that is how I fuel performance. I mean, when I think about this thing, and realize insulin is a transport hormone that I want to be able to shuttle nutrients into the cells, I need not only those cells to be empty, but I need to be able to make it more advantageous. And just being able to have circulating insulin, um, you know, when, uh, you know, when cells aren't empty isn't really of any benefit for me. So the way that I understand it, and I could be completely dead ass wrong, but the way that I was always explained to it, um, you know, was that kind of way. And then you know, when I started working with Dr. David Squall back in, you know, uh, 99, 2000, you know, I I started with the anabolic diet and was completely ketogenic for, for five days. And then I would switch over and, uh, the amount of food and carbs that I would consume on that weekend, Saturday and Sunday was almost obscene. I mean, you'd sit down and I would eat like, you know, like four, you know, Four huge pizzas, and I would just consume this mass amount of uh, calories, and there was this huge hormonal shake. The problem was, it was extremely hard for me to be able to do the volume of sprinting, running, and conditioning work on a, on a low keto, on a very ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. So when I talked to Doctor D, I was like, Doc, I'm like, I, I, I like, I feel charged up come Monday, but by Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't have anything in the gas. I'm just tapped out. And he's like, Well, okay. So we actually switched it over and started kind of doing some carb cycling, where I would do my carb day, like my heavier carb day, on my heavy leg days. So I would carb up on Mondays and Thursdays, and the other days I would stay ketogenic, and that worked very well for me. And I remember I ended up uh, getting pretty strong. I you know I leaned out, I felt good, I was doing really good, and uh, I actually ended up getting too big. I think at that point I was like three thirty six. Uh, I was way too big. And I called Dr. D and I was like, dude, I'm way too big. Uh, And he's like, you know, cut, cut the food back. I need you to do this. And he ended up slimming me down. I think I played that season at about three ten, and I played the best I ever had. But I realized that for me, um, really what I needed was I could, you know, if I carved up and I got the majority of both of my carbs right around my training, I did pretty well. Um, but you know, I, I, never did good off of two or 300, 400 grams of carbs. I was always right around hundred, 150 grams on my heavy days. And on my off days I was significantly lower. And that's where we really got this methodology of earn your carbs. Carbs are fuel. Uh, your body burns fat in this oxidative pathway, this oxidative energy system. When you flip over and go to that glycolytic pathway, you need carbohydrates for it. You need this protein, obviously being the building blocks to really the bulk of the diet. And what I realized is that if I didn't train, I didn't earn carbs. If I sat on my butt for a week and didn't do anything and I didn't train, I didn't do anything, then I didn't earn my carbs. If I'm out training three times a day, uh, you know, lifting, weight, sprinting, conditioning, stretching, and I'm training my ass up, you know what? Then I've earned more carbs. And what it really came back to is there was nothing fancy. There's nothing sexy about it. It's just earn your carbs. Did you earn your carbs today? And really that was the methodology. I used through most of my playing career after. And that was something I you know, really talked to Dr. D about. And he's like, it makes sense. You know, for a performance-based athlete, for somebody that's making his money based on his ability to generate force, to be able to condition, go in and do these things, you have to have the fuel to make this happen. So there's nothing sexy about it. It's like, um, you know, I I don't know how to get you stronger lifting lightweights. You know, later. I mean, that, that's a big one too, being like, well, I'd like to get stronger. Well, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to lift heavy weights and you're going to struggle. You're going to fail. Ah, that doesn't sound like me. Like, like, it just doesn't work for me. Like, so, I mean, there's just basic principles that we've come out to over the years from my own training, being around this stuff and teaching it that aren't sexy. But you know what? I mean, there's nothing sexy about going in and lifting heavy weights every single day. There's nothing sexy about, you know, Luke and I, two hours ago, out in the parking lot pushing the prowler. To the point where we thought we were going to throw up and not be able to do the podcast. But occasionally you got to go out and do these things. Except how we look with our shirts off. Super sexy. (laughs)
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, no one wants to hear that it's hard work, right? Yeah, I mean,
0: but you know what? Like the thing which has been good, and I always go back. I remember we were in a gym out in Virginia Beach recently in the – I can't remember the gym the life of me but i'll look for it uh but the gal had all these great mark Ripto quotes painted on the wall and my favorite and there's millions of great rip quotes if you hang out with rip he's just like a constant quote uh you know machine gun but the one she had painted on the wall and actually i wrote it up on the board and tried to really explain it to people is uh you know welcome to the community where easy will no longer suffice mm-hmm. where hard work is you know the mark for it and that's what I think people are really seeing. I mean, people, you you hear these kind of empowering stories all the time where, you know, I came to the CrossFit gym. I mean, I, I went to my local training facility. We started doing these workouts and I didn't think I could do it. Somehow I survived and it gave me the strength and the power and the confidence to do other things in my life. And it was really, you know, I mean, we always joke about, you know, the the quote from Wedding Crashers and any of you, anybody that's been to our CrossFit Football Seminar knows we try to work in like Wedding Crashers and Facts and Furious quotes. But it was really, you know, people helping people. You know, it's powerful stuff, which is, you know, the, the great Joe or the great line from Wedding Crashers. And it's true. I mean, you know, people and, and I know this is going to sound terrible, but like where do people go for community these days? I mean, do people still go to the church? I know churches are still big, but I mean, people go to places like Facebook for their community. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, I know this is crazy, but Facebook has really become the community meeting place, a virtual meeting place. I saw something the other day that talked about the first virtual prom that these kids went to a prom virtually where they were on their computers with cameras dressed up and they were virtual prom dates and they went to a virtual prom with a hangout hangout room. And I remember thinking to myself, how fucking sad is that? Yeah. Like, I mean, so what, I'm going to get dressed up at home and go get on my Skype. I mean, it's just like, like what's been good with these, you know, now with the growing of the micro gym that you have these people that are all plugged into this kind of mother shit mentality where it's like no longer will easy suffice. Welcome to hard work. I mean, this kind of mentality and you got people plugged into this idea of, you know, hey, you need to eat clean that the only health care that you can afford is to go to your local gym, eat a good diet, train your butt off and live to be long and healthy, because if you get sick, you're fucked. You don't have enough money in your pocket. The insurance company, I mean, health insurance, all these things. I tell people, and I did—I used to tell people for years, the best thing you can do for health insurance, the best in health insurance you can do is show up to this gym and eat this diet.
2: Yep, that's right. Absolutely. And, and you know, like they say, bad habits are catchy. Good habits are catchy, too. What I find in the CrossFit community, CrossFit football community, is that, um, you know, if you're around a bunch of people who do good stuff, eat well, train hard, work hard, go every day. I don't feel like squatting today. Go squat, whatever. All of a sudden, it's yeah, this is working and it pays off. And I'm really interested. Um, I'm this summer. I'm going to start some research here on sort of the psychology of that mentality because I too am disturbed by the Facebook community uh, thing and the idea of a, a virtual prom. I mean how in the hell do you get laid at that pom, prom? prompt? You know what I mean? It's like, um, but the idea of people living on, on Facebook and not living with people, I think is another thing that CrossFit has brought out. You know, when I first heard about CrossFit several years ago, I thought, Oh, group classes. That's, that doesn't seem like me within the, the community. And what happens is, and you find this in hunter gatherer tribes all over the, the globe is that when people are, uh, working hard, persevering, um, uh, experiencing extreme conditions they can do amazing things and what we're finding in in just our gym and probably every crossfit gym across is like you said you get this grandma who walks in who says i don't think i can do this the end of the workout she's sweating breathing heavy said oh my gosh i can do that walks out with a newfound confidence that she can now pick the milk up out of the refrigerator or pick up her grandkids or something like that i mean the the psychological um it's
0: called uh, shared suffering
2: yeah, it's why. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's, well, it's why NFL teams still go to training camp. I mean, uh, everybody in every NFL team shows up in shape. There's no. Their training camp is 50 years outdated. There's no reason to go to it. There's no reason to do that level of hitting, and they're trying to pare it back. But what happens is, is you put people into a situation and you put them through hell. You put them in these bad situations. I mean, that's why you know you, if you go down and you look at like uh, all the you know special forces programs from the Navy SEALs. Uh, On, I mean, every one about those is, you know, can you can you suffer? Uh, Can you, you know, build bonds? I mean, it's just this idea of shared suffering. I mean, uh, it's, you know, not only are you teaching yourself something, you're teaching another something and you're really, you know, building people together. I mean, that was what the whole theory behind basic training was about. I mean, and, you know, whether you go through buds, I mean, do they really need to do that level to get these guys to operator standpoint? Uh, no, but they do it because they need to know who they can depend on. But there's going to be a terrible situation. I remember um, <clears throat> I played for uh, Tom Cable, who is, uh, was the head coach for the Raiders. He was my offensive line coach in college. And uh, he was still is a, uh, a phenomenal coach, but a complete miserable son of a bitch. And a uh, probably one of the most brutal taskmasters I ever played for. Uh, things he had us do and the amount of abuse that we took, uh, you know, he had a deal where it was like, dude, I'm going to harden you guys to the point that no matter what comes down playing football, you will never bat an eyelash. And I remember when I went to go play in the NFL, nothing I did in the NFL in practice Hitting any game, nothing was as hard as what we had done in college uh, playing for Tom Cable. And I remember being out there in the hottest game in NFL history. I mean, it's like 168 degrees in Dallas, September 1st. And, you know, like it was hot. And I remember thinking out there, I'm like, uh, I've already been through these problems. I've already been through this suffering. I mean, we've suffered through these hot days. That's why we were at training camp. And, we, you know, you end up going out, we end up winning that game. And people ask us and it's like, yeah, it was, it was terrible. But you know what? I mean, every day was terrible. Uh, so, I, I think what you're really seeing today is this idea of community. And if you even read the book of tribes, that people need to be associated with these tribes. They need these central meeting places. They need shared suffering. They need direction. And, you know, hopefully it's, you know, I, I don't think it's going to save the world, but shit, man, we need something. I yeah. mean, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, political weather, I mean, this, uh, like, I, uh, you know, it's just we're in, uh, you know, these are interesting times. I <laughs> mean, it's a uh, it's a scary time. It's a it's a great time, but I mean, you know, you, you look around and you know, if you if you watch the news, you almost get like a sick feeling in your stomach, almost thinking like, what's next?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Um, hey, Denny, do we have any questions that these guys can answer? Um,
0: man, that's ballistic some heavy pull-ups. Shit. I mean, you oh yeah, yeah, ballistic.
2: yeah, yeah. Ballistic pull-ups. Yeah, what's up? All right.
0: Well, uh, this kind of goes back to some of the training that I did with Raphael, uh, back in the day. I mean, we had this idea, uh, you know, obviously with our seven planes of motion and our, you know, main prime or our or main upper body primals is that vertical pole. Well, uh, how do you get stronger in your vertical pull? I mean, uh, if you think about, is there a way to do some form of dynamic loading? I mean, obviously, if you look back at some of the Russian stuff and even the west side with the max effort, dynamic effort, how do you figure out some dynamic pull? I mean, a lot of people will do, you know, fast, explosive lap pull downs. Um, you know, obviously, in the CrossFit deal, what do you end up using? You end up using a violent hip extension to create some form of uh, dynamic vertical displacement. But the problem is, what are you really using? You're using centrifugal force. You're using, uh, you know, your, that, that violent kip. So when we talked about being able to do, uh, obviously, we do a ton of weighted pull-ups. But what about being able to do a vertical pull faster? And so we would, uh, um, you know, obviously do timed reps and we'd be like, okay, how fast can you do 15 pull-ups? Which, obviously, there are a lot of people in the processing community that do that, but they do it with a kip. And anytime you ever watch people do a strict pull-up, it's always very slow and controlled. And I was always kind of like a little interested when I once saw people doing a lot of kipping pull-ups. They were very different than how I ever did a kip. So for me, I always looked at just a vertical pull, push-pull mentality, almost looking at like the bar as um, like think about a lat pull-down. Like you get into the lat and you actually pull the, the, uh, the bar straight down. Um, when I look at doing a pull-up, I look at the mentality is I'm gonna grab the bar and I'm gonna try to pull the bar down as fast and as hard as I can to my chest. There was no big open arm and I probably don't have the flexibility to do a lot of these kipping pull-ups that I see people do with this massive gymnastics kip. And then I remember uh, I was always pretty good. I could do, you know, 25, you know, pretty good dead hang pull-ups and you know, could do, you know, 10 pull-ups of 95 pounds between my waist. I was always pretty good. Somebody showed me how to do a butterfly kip, and all of a sudden I jump up and I do like 38 uh, or butterfly kipping pull-ups in a row. I came down and was like, wait a minute. If I can do 38 of them at over 300 pounds, I probably shouldn't be doing these things. This isn't fair. Now, obviously, it's a great tool if you're going into a do a CrossFit workout where you're competing and you need to do faster pull-ups. But at the end of the day, I'm looking as the vertical pull, as the ability to create a stronger, more stable shoulder girdle, upper body platform to be able to put a heavy bar on my back. So obviously the kipping pull-up doesn't always, or the, the with the big gymnastics, kips didn't really play into that more of my push and pull. I think they used to call it a frog kip. You still watch Andy Sakamoto do them, which was the way that I kind of always thought about doing them myself. So just the dynamic pull-up was how do you still pull dynamically? How do you pull as hard and as fast as you can without using your legs? So. It's just a different, you know, kind of deal. It's a different kind of take on this whole, uh, you know, vertical pull. And that's really just the base the ballistic pull-up.
1: And the caveat to that or the catch is, you know, the, the point is to keep a neutral shoulder girl, not to get speed in your pull-up by compromising your shoulders, elevating, protracting, internally rotating, like some of the ugly stuff we see on uh, undeveloped shoulder girl strength or unstable shoulders.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because like you said, uh, a weighted pull-up or even just a strict pull-up, usually when people do it, it's slow. And especially a max effort weighted pull-up, if you're doing a one rep max weighted pull-up, it's probably not going to be fast. So, it it kind of – it reminded me when I saw it of sort of the west side dynamic uh, max effort sort of split where this was something where you've just got body weight, which is – probably you know between 50 and 80% of your one rep max or something and so like boom you're real fast up um individual reps so you're not cycling you're making sure that shoulder girl is staying real solid and and safe yeah they they were killer though i did that workout and i was like wow this is this is
0: different it's it's just another wrinkle i mean we're always kind of trying to play with stuff i mean i i uh... If you go back and you read a lot of the Russian text and you read a lot of the uh, original things that Zataskorsky and Berkashansky wrote, they talked about this kind of you know method. Obviously, the uh, most effective method for building strength and muscle was the max effort method, which was you know uh, basically getting that body those neuromuscular uh, pathways and you know the muscle fibers everything to really fatigue. And what they said is that the strength and all the size and everything was built within those last reps to failure. That it was better you know, if you're going in and lifting a five RM, it's better to find your four and a half than your six RM, hmm. you know? And it was this kind of idea that, you know, that last rep, and even if you look at the old Arnold quotes, he's like, you know, the, you know, the, the fourth and fifth rep that you barely get, those last two reps are the most important ones that the first, you know, one, two, and three were just fatiguing you to the point where it was breaking things down to allow you to make gains on that fourth and fifth rep. I mean, that, that was really kind of, has always been kind of that mentality. And then all of a sudden, and then you get into the kind of the dynamic loading, which was anywhere from, you know, let's say 30 to 50% of your one RM. And you were basically moving as fast as you can. Uh, you know, that there was this idea that, you know, that that the body, you know, is able to generate force and that that speed builds strength. And then that and then obviously the repetition method, which would be max set of reps to failure. And if you watch some of the things that we do, like the other day, we pulled a heavy five from the deadlift we did a drop set at 80% of that five RM for max reps, um, similar kind of, you know, max effort mixed with that repetition method. So, you know, uh, we, if you notice, we use kind of a couple different methodologies with the training. We realized that the, Unadapted, untrained, very fresh central nervous system of a beginner works in a linear progression. We can literally, literally, progress the strength, you know, with no periodization, nothing, just basically keeping, you know, a volume similar and then just increasing tonnage and intensity by adding weight. And then when we get into that kind of a mix with the collegiate program, you start seeing kind of a blending of the two. And then we get into the advanced, you get into kind of a little bit more of, uh, you know, kind of that max effort stuff where, you know, yeah, we like to lift heavy weights. I mean, I, uh, uh, I've i never been a huge fan of classic periodization where we're going to test a 1RM and then for nine weeks we're going to lift off of these percentages. And the reason being and, is I just got fooled with the percentages so many times by, by training with different people. I mean, I would come in, lift a 1RM, somebody else would lift a 1RM and then he would train at 80%. And I would train at 80%. And he obviously could have gone heavier where I needed to go lighter. And when you go and you even look at some of, um, you know, uh, Abijaev's work, he talked about you know uh, he actually drew a picture of three waves and uh, he showed like a little tiny wave and he was like this guy this little wave is Nam who was his you know top lifter the uh, um, I can't remember his name but he was the the, the little short guy um, he's like you know he would test his one RM and he would do his drop sets for doubles within ninety five percent of his one RM so he had a little wave and then he showed his medium lifter which was a medium wave he would do drop sets at ninety percent and then he showed the big wave which was his big lifters they would do their drop sets at eighty five percent. And he realized that, you know, the smaller lifters could recover faster. And there was just kind of this periodization of, you know, not really a periodization in any way, but he understood that certain people would handle certain percentages. And when, when we went and tested percentages, you know, I mean, we've seen people that have blown the Perlipance chart out of the water. I think Perlipance chart's a great place to start, uh, you know, but you also have to remember that that was a, huge cross-section of elite Olympic lifters where they, you know, timed their reps and said, okay, you know what, if you can lift 0.8 meters per second, then, you know, this is how it goes. And they had a very select criteria. I mean, we've definitely seen people come in and, you know, give me seven, eight, nine, ten 10 reps at their 90%. And, you know, is it that their bodies are able to handle the volume or is that not really their accurate one RM? And so, uh, what I realized is when, we did a lot of this training, the only training and the only percentages that I really trusted. And this came out of us doing a, uh, some Bulgarian training were the ones that we did that day yeah. that I would go in and test a one RM. And then I'd follow this classic periodization for nine weeks. And there was a point in there where all of a sudden the weights started getting really light. And I was like, after about three or four weeks of squatting, those fours at 80%, all of a sudden I could add 10, 20 kilos to this. And, you know, but then you kind of have to stay, How do I know nine weeks from now I'm going to be at my strongest? What if I was strongest four weeks into the program? Shouldn't I have the ability to go in and make PRs when I want to? So what we found is that by testing rep maxes, we could create some or this inherent periodization where I could make the you know not really limiting people that you know what if you want to go for a PR today on your five RM pull pull a PR. If you don't feel that good, you just need to go in it. that's just the five heaviest reps you need to lift on that day. It might not be a PR. It might be 10 pounds off, but you know what? That's the inherent periodization. I hear people all the time on the comments like lose their mind like, oh, my God, I'm going backwards in my deadlift. I pulled, uh, you know, 400 for five. Now I only pulled 385 for five. And, like, they're, like, losing their mind. And I'm always like, relax, young one. Like, <laughs> like I, like I I like, you almost feel like Obi-Wan or, you know, Yoda a little bit where you're like, settle your jets realize like we're in this fight like you guys it's kind of that deal from colors you know the uh the bull looks at the big bull and says hey let's run down there and fuck one of those cows and the big bull looks at him <laughs> yeah and walk down there and fuck them all yeah like we're staying. This this isn't one day for us this is years in the making like i'm not basing my performance off of what i can do each day i'm basing my performance on on a longer timeline that's where i tell people like you can't jump in and do a program for just a week you can't cafeteria CrossFit where you just pick and choose what you want to do. You have to follow a program. I just got an email from a guy that, you know, has been, I've been training three and a half years and he listed 10 different programs. I started doing CrossFit main site and then I I did strength bias. And then from there I went and I joined my Olympic lifting team and I was lifting trained there. And then I went to do outlaw program. And from there I went to the Texas method. And then I was, I mean, like the guy listed all these programs and I'm like, how long has this guy been trained? Like, how would he know if any of these things worked? And then he gets into this whole deal where he goes, well, should I, you know, should I take some rest days? And I was like, <laughs> what are you training? Like, yeah. are, are you training to be Rich Froning? Or are you training to be an Olympic lifter? Like, what's your goal? Like, um, you know, I found a detraining effect after about seven days. So, I mean, there's was a, a program that I wrote on CrossFit football. I think it was like Jaeger bombs in Town, where I listed this template that I did on my vacation where if I wasn't gonna be able to train for like, let's say uh, seven days, we're going away. I had this basic two day template that as long as I followed that I could maintain my strength because I knew I had a detraining effect after seven days. And if I was drinking for more than three or four days in a row, I went even faster. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I knew I needed to get my butt in the gym and get and do something, stretch, warm up, and at least go lift some weights just to keep that physiological fire. I mean, Think about this if you take two weeks off that first set of lifting feels heavy you do that same with the neck or you can do that same weight on the next set it's significantly lighter the body has that intra and intramuscular coordination and it loses that stuff so you have to be diligent but you can't hammer yourself so bad that you're destroying the training effect you know i mean people talk a lot about super compensation and i've read things that are conflicting and you know, it makes sense, but you know, there's also why do you have to do that? Like, why do you have to punish yourself so bad and take off to get back up when you can kind of continually climb the mountain almost like Mount Everest?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that happens on the boards, and you mentioned, you know, the the the, the people who post and say, "Oh, last week I got a five rep max at this, and I couldn't do it this week," is when you're new, uh, PRs come all the time, right? Every week, yeah, PR. Yeah, I know, I feel you. Um, but I mean, you know, I think also one of the thing that it, one of the things that's important to note is this idea of what what I call a daily training max. I think Zatsiorsky called it like T Z M or something like that. Yep. But um, and I recently did a little uh, stint of squatting every day. I was leading up to this powerlifting meet, and I I just I wanted to squat heavier than I had, and I hadn't been squatting a lot, and I uh, just kind of told myself that I'm gonna do it every day. But it was all everything I did was based off a daily max. So I, I you know wasn't off my one rep max. and I had an effect kind of like what you said. You know, maybe four weeks in, you're you're strong. and that's what happened. About two thirds of the way in, I went for a max and I PR'd and it and I had been squatting every day for twelve days straight. And now I just hit a PR. And it was just because I just because I had gotten stronger from working from those daily percentages, as opposed and, and like sort of, I think of it in, in like a line graph. You know, if you do a, a, a nine week periodization, you get a one rep max, you base all the percentages off of that. There's no variability in that line. It's just a kind of a straight line that's going up, presumably. And what sure. I feel like when you're doing sort of this daily maxes is that, you know, on a day when you're feeling it, you're feeling it, go for it. And that's how I read the CFFB programming.
0: Yeah. And, and that's what it's, it's all based on. The idea is that how do you effectively program for 30,000 people you've never met? Because we have all different shapes and sizes. We have different nervous systems. We have different, we're all these unique, very different organisms that have a different training background, a different history. I mean, when we did a deal where we uh, did a lot of, actually, we squatted every day very similar. It was worked up to a 1RM and a push, a pull, and a press. It was a push, yeah, push, pull, and a squat every day. And... I think I squatted between and 600 for eighteen days in a row, uh, singles, and then I did drops. And I mean, I was uh, some of the, the best squatting I've done. I mean, just that re- repeti- or the the repetition, the uh, you know the movement pattern. It, like the only word I could think of is grease. It just everything looked smooth. It felt good, um, and it just was uh, very very good for us the problem is, is that there's very, very few people that can handle that amount of volume over an extended period of time. And to really do it, you need to be not only sleeping right, you need to be eating right, you need to be, you know, obviously massage, restoration, contrast, I mean, a lot of things, supplements, I mean, whatever you need to do to survive it. And then at the end of the day, why are you doing it? Uh, the guy, you know, we did it as a group of a lot of the guys. And I mean, uh, guys were coming apart at the seams. And when you go back and you look at, What did their training volume look like? What did you do building up to this? You know, Luke and I did very well. But Luke was a college football player. We've been training like this our whole lives. You take Ben, who had been a soccer player, who's good at volume. This much intensity completely derailed him. Nate, who was, uh, you know, got into lifting weights early at like 20 or later at 26, completely came apart at the seams. So, uh, like, I really went back and you really, when you go look at like, Even, you know, Mike Yesi or Dr. Yesi's work or, you know, some of those early Russian texts, they really talk about, uh, you know, developing the athletes at a certain age, being able to build those neuromuscular pathways, be able to create those energy systems, be able to create those stressors before a certain age that becomes the foundation in which things are built on. And that was a great talk that I had with uh, Dr. Romanov when I, you know, when I was, my wife was pregnant, you know, what kind of things do we need to work on with the babies? And his big thing was uh, work to train their girl. You know, we, um, you know, that's like a big thing for us. So, I mean, we started, you know, that girl squeezing the fingers and now to the point where I can carry them around the house where they just hold on to my fingers and I can, you know, they hold on for as long as they want. But uh, you know, a lot of these things, uh, you know, start at a very early age. And I, I think what's difficult for some people with the CrossFit stuff is, you know, they come in, they want to train, they see like the Rich Fronings and Annie Thoris and a lot of these athletes doing incredible things. And they think, well, hey, I want to do it. I want to compete in this. <laughs> and you're like, so what, you know, we ask people all the time, like, what did you do building up to this? Well, I've never really lifted weights. So you're finding weights at 30 years old. Like, I, uh, I'm not going to squash your dreams, but I, I mean, get in there and turn your butts off. But I'm fairly confident that you're not going to be Rich Froning at the CrossFit Games next year. Thanks you for, know, blo- bounce, thanks for blowing know.
2: up my dreams, John.
0: I am I'm I mean, dude, I'm a realist. <laughs> I, it, I mean, dude, I, I played in the NFL where things were as harsh and as real as you could ever imagine. I mean, I remember sitting there and like them being like telling guys, being like, I don't think you can do it, and handing them their pink slip and being like, uh, hey, drop your playbook off. I mean, I watched that for years. You know, I watched guys get cut on the practice field for fucking up a play. I, I was sitting in a meeting and a guy couldn't know it, and literally the guy, they, they were like, dude, go, you're out of here. Uh, if you can't learn the place, we don't need you on this team. I mean, I played in a very, very real place where it was not sugarcoated. There was no hand holding. You were expected to do a job. You were paid good money for it. If you could not do the job, there was a thousand guys standing behind you that would literally cut off their right hand to do that job. So, you know, part of the problem I run into, especially in a commercial gym. And I think why these guys kind of push me into the back room is cause, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not good at stroking egos or, or, or filling people full of lies. And, uh, they're always like, dude, you gotta like, "Ah, I'm sorry. Like if, you know, like if somebody comes in and they're not a good mover or they're not strong, I'm not going to sit there and, and sugarcoat it and tell them that they're good when they're not like, I just don't work that way. And, uh, you know, too many hits to the head have obviously destroyed my emotional intelligence. So (laughs) it all works that way. But, uh, I, 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 what you guys really see with the CrossFit football is, um, just this, you know, kind of not only the progression of my training, but also these years of working with different people and seeing what works and then trying to design programming around a whole bunch of people that don't get to come to my gym that don't show up and train with us. And, um, unfortunately we just based it off of some very, you know, real principles and have found out some, some cool truths that, you know, some people just choose to ignore because at the end of the day, it doesn't sell books and it isn't sexy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We've been at this a while here today. I just want to, I want to say one more thing. It's, it's amazing that you're thinking about training your girls already. Um, I just read a couple of articles. I'm, I'm the same way with my son. I want him to be as fit as he can. And if he chooses sports, great. Um, One of the things I've noticed in, in two year olds, uh, he's two and a half now and sort of one and a half to two year olds is uh, basically the same stuff that you talk about on CrossFit football, which is ballistic movements. So things like jumping, things like um, throwing, picking up a ball, being able to hang from stuff. Uh, My son can actually do uh, about 10, toes to rings on the rings. He'll just grab on and he, he won't let go. He just and he can jump over things. And so I think it's it's good like you're talking about from a young age. One of the things that this culture what we talked about earlier I think is uh, and I think Luke or, or Ben mentioned it in the last podcast which was I can't imagine what's going to happen to all these kids who are basically being raised in CrossFit gyms. I mean, my son—we have a—we have a gym in our garage in addition to our affiliate. But my son walks out there and he can pick up a PVC pipe or a, a two and a half pound dumbbell or roll a medicine ball down the the street. And there, I—I'm th- I, really interested to see that experiment that these kids who are in this culture well, growing we know, up.
0: We we know the kids learn their movement patterns by their parents. I mean, there was a, uh, you know, that's, you know, we've known that for years. I mean, they have studies where they've observed kids that were raised by their paternal grandparents and, you know, they, they look at their gate and they see the kids shuffling their feet. I mean, there's right. a reason that you see professional athletes, you know, and then they have kids and those kids are playing professional athletes. I mean, you look at. Uh, you know, I mean, how many NFL guys? I mean, right from uh, for decades, I mean, how many guys' dads played in the NFL? They were around the game. They they did the things that were necessary. There was like, a you know competition for it. So, I mean, it just. You know, I I remember uh, a girl in college who was on the track team, uh, was real talented. Turned out her dad held the uh, world record at 800 meters and her mom was a NCAA champ in the 800 meters. I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, uh, if it's racehorses or people, lineage is important. Absolutely. You know, like, 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 where do they come from? I mean, you know, if you go look at racehorses, I mean, there's a reason why uh, I can't remember the horse, but there's a reason he gets paid a million and a half bucks a stud. I mean, because he breeds champions and it's like, you know, like uh, that age old thing where, you know, I've had people for years be like, Hey, you know, uh, how could my son play in the NFL? And you're looking at the dad and the dad's five, nine and the mom's five foot. And I'm like, unless, uh, you guys grew up next to a power plant or something crazy, or you got some six foot five uncle hiding in the background. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you will have the size. I mean, you know, in the NFL, if you know, as an offensive lineman, if you're not six, two, six, three, six, five, six, six, I mean you're probably not going to get a look. So, um, you know, I mean, all, all the training in the world is great, but without the basic genetic raw material, you know, without the things from day one, I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, you're playing at a disadvantage. So, but we know the kids learn their movement patterns. So that's why every CrossFit gym I go into, we always look, I'm like, you got a kid area. Can it see the floor? Can it see the parents? You guys let the kids come out and play. It's always big for me because you know what? Some of our top athletes in the world in 20 years are going to be, when you talk to them, they are going to be like, yeah, uh, my parents own this gym, and their friends (laughs) came and lifted every Saturday, and we had this great time, and next thing you know, I'm an Olympic champion, we're going to be like, probably the rise of the micro gym.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of what other countries do, right? I mean, they identify these kids young, uh, like they're racehorses. So, yeah, awesome. Hey, guys.
0: You guys also wanted to know about shoes and belts. Uh, Oli shoes are good, squat barefoot, wear bands, wear anything you can. Don't squat in Nike uh, shocks or, uh, uh, or Nike freeze or anything like I prefer to squat. Uh, I squat in either Vans, barefoot or Oli shoes. Well, we uh, we also
1: posted a, uh, a good article on the face our Facebook page about force transfer.
0: Yeah. Force and that's, transfer.
1: that's essentially the purpose behind that. But at the end of the day, if your shoes become a crutch for your ankle
0: flexibility, that's when it becomes an issue. Yeah, that's good. And then belts. Yeah, I, I have belts. Uh, I have different ones. I got a thin leather belt that I like to wear um, and uh, I'll wear that. I usually don't belt up till over 85% um, just because I never want to feel like that belt is a crutch. When I throw on that belt, I kind of want to be like the uh, over the top mentality where I swing the hat around backwards and then I go arm wrestle Bull Harley. So, <laughs> you know, you notice Malone didn't turn his hat around until the very end of the movie. So yeah. it wasn't like on the initial one, he had his hat around backwards. No, he had the hat straight. So I think people go to the belt too soon. And I think the reason is, is because, you know, the ego, um, you know, to do this style of training and to really be a good athlete, I think you got to have a lot of pride, but you got to be, you know, small enough in the ego or, or have a a uh, I guess you could say flexible enough ego where you realize like, Hey, you know what? I got to do the work. I mean, just you got to have a good mentality for this stuff. So I think that's about it though. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I'm not a talker. I, I don't mean to talk this much. I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: uh, you, you, you're not telling me on that one. <laughs> no, this has been awesome. I think we should probably call it though because we're at over an hour here. Um, okay. So yeah, thanks guys. Uh, I guess Power Athlete is out. Thanks guys, see you. Ya. See ya. Thanks a lot.